What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and on this show, you are gonna learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're gonna be able to listen to that's gonna give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm gonna interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week, and there's also gonna be some content that is just gonna be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million-dollar real estate investor. So if you wanna learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to, and I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and I got a great interview today with my friend Austin Hughes, and we're going to talk about how he got started in real estate and some of the cool creative deals that he's doing down in Texas. So if you're interested in learning how to do creative real estate investing, this episode is going to be very valuable for you. So my one ask is if you do get value from the show, if you can leave a review and share it on social media. That is how we get more people to listen to the podcast is they see reviews and they also see social proof online. So if you get value, if you can leave a review and share it on social media, it would really mean a lot to me. If you have not listened to the show yet, I mean, this this podcast, I mean, every week my goal is to provide as much value as I can through interviews mostly. So uh, hopefully, you know, if you're a loyal listener, you know that. If you're brand new, that's what you can expect. Before I play the interview, if you want to do a JV deal with me, if you're living in Delaware, the Hudson Valley, or San Diego, and you got a property that you want to JV with me, whether you're, you want to wholesale it together, or if you're just a wholesaler and you want to sell me a property, and it's in one of the areas I just mentioned, the Hudson Valley, Delaware, or San Diego, send me an email, greg at velocityhousebuyers.com. That's greg at velocityhousebuyers.com. And also, if you're interested in some one-on-one coaching I've been offering recently, head over to bookacallwithgreg.com. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview with Austin. It was a fun interview, and I'll see you on the next one. All right, Austin, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm great. Sweet. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I know we had to reschedule it once. So let's get right in today. Today's the theme of the show is we're going to get into your real estate journey. How'd you get started? What are you doing in your business today? What's working? What's not working? And uh, then we'll talk about where you want to head in the future. And I know a couple of things I've seen you post online are, you know, how to do creative finance deals, which everyone loves to talk about. So we'll definitely cover that today. So before we get into that, how did you get started in real estate, Austin? Well, I was, I started my company when I was in college at Texas Tech University. And I really wasn't looking to start a real estate business per se. I just wasn't getting everything I wanted out of college, but I didn't want to drop out. And so I was like, I'll just study real estate investing. Maybe I can use it when I'm 40 or 50 and have money. And, uh, you know, it'll be a, a wise thing to do. So I just dove into it. And after about a year to two years of heavy, heavy research and educating myself, I learned what a lot of people learn that, oh, you can get into real estate without having bunch of money or uh really all that many resources at all to start with so i started my company when i was yeah so i was like let's get going i had a a thousand bucks which was i thought i was rich at the time there's more money than i had ever had i was always in the hundreds up until that point so i got a thousand bucks let's start let's uh start a real estate company so i did that during my senior year at texas tech Dude, you sound like me. I got started in college with like 2,000 bucks or two peas in a pod. That's Man, you had a big jump start. <laughs> double, double your wealth, right? Double your wealth. I remember I actually spent half of it on training, so I really had 1,000 after that. But uh, interesting. So you got started when you're young. Now let's talk about your first deal. How'd you get your first deal? Because obviously everyone starts. They, they obviously know that it works because they see it, other people talking about it. But until they do their first deal, uh, nothing really matters. Yep. So first deal was a, I actually had two deals going at the same time. One of them I put under contract. I didn't sell until after another one. So we'll say I kind of had two first deals, but 
we'll look at the mobile home that I did. Um, I bought it for $3,000, put $1,200 into renovations on it. And it was just a cash deal. So I had my How'd you find the money for that? Yeah, my mom, my mom invested in that with me. There you and, go. Which is good because I don't come from a bunch of money. So that was that small property was within something she could afford to invest in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, so all in was $4,200 into that mobile home. And then we sold it owner finance and got $3,000 down 500 bucks a month for six years. So after two months, it was break even. And then that was all profit from there. That's unbelievable. So that, was, that was my first deal. And actually just mobile. paid it off last year. So that's happy funny, for that. man. Was it on land or was it a mobile home in a park? It was in a park. So I just owned the home, no land with it. So you basically bought and sold the car. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no, that's, dude, that's crazy, bro. I mean, I, I mean, your area is a lot cheaper than my area. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. would never exist in my market, but actually, mm, no, probably not. You're not going to buy a mobile home for, for three grand. That's, that's crazy. Is it a single wide or a double wide? It was a single wide. It was a 1990s model, which, I bought a bunch of mobile homes after that, and that turned out to be the newest one that I did. <laughs> Everything after that was 80s and even some 70s models. So, um, but it sold for 30 grand. That was our that was the price, and then we financed it with interest. So, so you found a mobile home that was ultimately worth 30 grand that you bought for three thousand dollars. Yep, that's unbelievably awesome. That's a great first deal. I mean, you can't get hurt paying three grand for a mobile home. How did you deal with the lot rent while you were renovating it? Did you just pay the lot rent yourself? Um, I believe on that one, I worked out a deal where I got like six months free lot rent or something like that. Okay. So I bought it from the park owner. They were just coming through. It was a big company. They were coming through and um, buying a bunch of mobile home parts, moving in all the homes that they could. And then they didn't really care what happened there. They just needed homes and lots that would eventually pay lot rent. So they weren't actually focused on cash flow or cash. They just wanted homes and lots at a long-term lease in place. Yeah, because if you bring the- months from now, yeah. sure. No, that's smart because if you bring the, if you buy the mobile, I don't do mobile homes, but I'd imagine that you, yeah, you bring the tenant in or the buyer in and then, he's paying you 30 for the property, but then he's also paying the lot rent or she's paying the lot. Right. rent. Yeah. That's a good strategy. Cause the mobile home park guys, they just want the land. They don't want to own the trailers. They just, they, they don't want those trailers. They just want the, 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 the person paying the lot rent. So that's, that's interesting, dude. That's really uh that's a cool first deal. So let me ask you this now. Are you, your market is like, are you in Lubbock, Texas? Yes. Okay. So that's, is that West Texas? Where is that? They call it West Texas. It's pretty much North Texas, but they call it West Texas. So, but it's, it's almost in the middle of Texas and then all the way up at the bottom of the panhandle. Okay. So you're up there. So you're not that far from what Oklahoma and Colorado, right? Right. Okay. A few hours drive to get to either of those. Okay. And then New Mexico can't be that far either. Yeah. We're like an hour hour and a half from New Mexico. Can you drive to like Phoenix or is that too far? Is that like, a, that's not like a weekend trip? It's, it's about 11 or 12 hours. I was actually looking at that since we're so going you, you there. could drive to LA and it's not that far, honestly. You could go to LA and it, you could probably punch that out in like 18 hours. Probably. Not that I would want to. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying that <laughs> you're, you're pretty far west. You're a lot far west than I thought. You're, you're like literally past the Midwest. Okay. Anyway, I digress about the geography. Let's get into your business. <laughs> you, you started the business. You did a deal. That's an awesome first deal, by the way. What does your business look like today? Like, we don't have to get into all the details, but like what, what exit strategies do you look to shoot for? Because a lot of people on this podcast are just talking about making cash offers. They're talking about flipping properties or doing the birth mm -hmm. strategy, but all those strategies require you to get a house at a deep discount. So I know you're doing some different stuff. Right. In the market. Yeah, I went... I went shallow and wide with my strategies. So I added a lot of strategies when I was starting out, which I don't recommend to everyone. I recommend if you're getting started just to 
I think wholesaling is a great place to focus and start because you have to get good deals. And as you just said, Greg, that's the basis of everything. All these exit strategies we're talking about, unless you just have super deep pockets and you don't care what you pay for a property, you got to get good deals. So that's not how I started. I did some owner financing, mobile homes, flipped houses, wholesale houses, bought rentals. Um, and so doing all that along the way, where we're at today is we have a pretty good sized rental portfolio. We've got some long-term owner finance notes, and then we actively are flipping and wholesaling properties in the interim. I'd say probably about half of what we buy turns into rentals, half of what we buy goes right back out the door as a wholesale or a flip. Okay. So you're doing, you're doing a little bit of both. You're doing the cash generating activities, right? Which is, um, sorry about that. I'm just, I got a new employee that just started today and I'm making sure, you know, she sets the system up correctly. Anyway, um, you got the cash generation strategy that everyone talks about. And then you're, you're doing this, the, the long-term stuff, the rental properties and the seller financing, right? And this is something there that's very fascinating to the listeners and to me selfishly is because, listen, I have rentals. I don't have as many as you do. I got a lot of friends in New York, my people, Michael Pinter and whatnot. We have rentals and I, I just got a tenant out yesterday and took me two years. Okay. Two fucking years to get That sounds home. miserable. I'll say that one more time for the listeners. Two years, 2720 West Spring Hills. Check it out if you want. Anyway, um, it, it's tough to, to be a landlord in, in some states. It's tough. Texas is not the case, right? So because of that opportunity in Texas, you can do seller financing, which I want you to cover because this is something that's very appealing to me as a guy who is a, I would consider myself a tired landlord at this point. You know, I, I, I would leave, <laughs> I'm a tired landlord. <laughs> I'm a young, tired landlord, <laughs> but I, you know, listen, a lot of those properties, actually all of them, I inherited those tenants. So I kind of walked into that, but can you explain to the listeners, what is an owner finance wrap and how does that benefit someone? Because when I heard that strategy and I wrapped my head around it, pun intended, I was like, this is, <laughs> you know, so tell, tell the listeners what that is. Cause in Texas, that just goes on like crazy. Yes. We do a lot of it here. I've actually got a good friend I've done business with for Pretty much since I got started, so seven years now, they exclusively do uh, rap notes and owner financing, and it is a sweet business model. So um, you, you bet, you bet it is. You bet it is. That is yeah. a great business model. Yeah. So the the way that we do it is basically we buy property. Again, you got to start with a, a deep discount on the property, and then we'll put some kind of bank financing on it. You could also do this with a private lender if you wanted to, but. Um, Banks usually give you the cheapest rates. So we put some bank financing on it. We know the bank that doesn't mind if we do a wrap note on it. It's something I always communicate with my lenders. I don't What's want them to be note? like, hey, for, for people who don't property? know what that is, what, can you explain yes. that to like the, the beginner, the novice? Yes. So the bank says you can do a wrap note on it. What that is, is the bank gives us a loan on the property. So we're making them payments every month. And then we'd sell that, the property with owner financing. And uh, instead of paying off the bank, we just keep their financing in place. Mm -hmm. And we do a wraparound mortgage to our end buyer. And yep. so basically, there's the bank's loan. And then there's our loan to the end buyer. They make us payments. We make the bank payments. Okay. That's, in a nutshell, what a wraparound note okay. is. So this is where it's going to get interesting now because Michael Pinter, I'm going to send him this interview after we actually record today. I'm going to give him a sneak preview. And I was telling him exactly what you just told me. He was talking about, he's like, I got to raise all this private money. And I said, yeah, you can do that. But I said, I'm pretty sure you can find a bank who doesn't give a shit and you can just do a reef, like a, basically a glorified burr. And instead yep. of keeping it as a rental, you just make sure the bank doesn't care or doesn't know that you're wrapping it. And you don't have to get all this private money. You can get short-term private money just to close on the deal. And then you can get those right. guys out of the deal in 12 months or less. And you can have a credit union on there. And they're probably not going to give a shit because the bank really just cares that you're paying the mortgage. They don't really care who's in the property. They don't yep. care what's going on in the property. All they care about is they're getting paid, right? So what is the average spread, net spread between what the tenant or not tenant, what the end buyer is paying you and what you're paying the bank. Like what is the average spread if you had to kind of guess? So right now, let's say average rates are 
seven and a half percent. Yeah. Um, there's somewhere between seven and eight, depending on the banks I'm working with. Now, when I've done a lot of these, it's cheaper, but let's say that we're getting money at seven and a half percent. We will sell it on, let's say, 12 and a half percent interest. So we've, yeah, about a five point spread. Is that so, with what interest rates are? So if the rates were in the threes, then you can't sell it in the twelves, right? You'd have to sell it like six points above the, what the par is. Is that how it works? Yeah. So so if they're in the threes, you'd get nine percent, maybe. Okay. So the spread is bigger. Actually, the spread for owner financing, from what I've seen, has gone down slightly, just because lenders are like, we don't want to make it too unaffordable. So you get about five percent uh, interest difference between what you're paying the bank and what you're receiving but also the amount that you owe the bank is going to be a lot less than the amount that your buyer owes you because anytime you sell with owner financing you should be getting a premium on that sales price you'd be getting retail plus some okay because you're providing financing so they're going to pay more for right price. okay it makes it much more valuable just okay. attaching the financing to it interesting now all right so you're making a spread on the interest at that point now, let me ask you this. So this all sounds great. In New York, if I could do this, I wouldn't own any rentals. Actually, I wouldn't, <laughs> own, I wouldn't be as ambitious to buy as many rentals as I want to buy. Mm -hmm. okay. So here, let me, let me just give you the, because we do have a lot of Northeast people listening to the show. So this is what happens in the Northeast. And I want, want you, after I explain this, to, to tell me how it happens in Texas, because I'm sure it's very different. If I have a consumer inside of a property and they're, they have a mortgage, so they're you know, they own the property, but they're paying the bank. Okay. If they stop paying that mortgage, if they have a good attorney and the law is in their favor, which it usually is, I'm not kidding. When you're about to hear this, you could be 10 to 15 years without getting the property back. Yikes. Okay. So because of that, you don't do owner financing in New York to, to, to other people, because if, if they file bankruptcy or something happens where they're like the attorney screws up the paperwork, you can get set back for a long time. So there's properties in my market that they've been vacant for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And the bank hasn't done anything yet because the borrower is still fucking around. So in Texas, if you have someone who doesn't pay you, what is a realistic foreclosure timeline? And what does that process look like if that were to happen? It's a few months. I don't know. Did the you say exact... a few months? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the exact number of months. You know, there, there are certain notices you need to give to them, but it's pretty much just moves forward like clockwork. Like you need this number of days between this and this notice, and then you can foreclose. So for instance, I had one that I owned finance to them and they got behind on payments. They caught up, they made big payments. They got behind. It's like the fourth time they're behind on payments. So I said, this is it. We're not going to allow you to get on a payment plan. You either have to pay it all off or we're going to foreclose on it. And so they're going to be paying it all off. They have it under contract to sell. But oh, it's great. We, once we once we told them that, our attorney was able to back it up with that process. And it was already on the, the foreclosure list uh, to go to auction earlier this month. And only because they had a signed contract by the buyer, we gave them an extra one month to make that closing happen before foreclosing on them. So yeah, it's very, it's the slower of the processes between eviction and foreclosure. Foreclosure is slower, but uh, it's pretty fast for New York standards, I guess. Are you a real estate investor who wants to get to the next level? Well, my name is Greg Hellback, and over the last five years, I have bought and sold well over 125 houses, and I have learned a ton of stuff, and I've made a lot of mistakes. And hopefully, as they say, a wise man learns from someone else's mistakes. So if you are a real estate investor and you want to learn how to get to the next level, you might be a good fit for my coaching program. So if you're interested in finding out if my coaching program could be a fit for you, head over to bookacallwithgreg.com. On that website, you're going to be able to simply book a call with me absolutely free for 15 minutes. And I'm basically going to see how I can best help you, right? I'm not going to high pressure sell you. It's going to be none of that whatsoever. It's going to be a very helpful call. We're going to have a 15 minute conversation. I'm going to ask you some questions about where you're at and where you want to get to. And if you think it's a fit to potentially work with me as a coaching client, I'd love to offer the opportunity to work with you. And if it's not a fit for some reason, no big deal. That 15 minute call is going to be super, super helpful. I'm going to give you some good pointers so I can help you, you know, get your business to the next level. 
there's two types of people I work with. The first person is the person who's brand new. They might not have ever done a deal before, and they really want to learn step-by-step step how they can get their first deal, right? That's the first person. The second person I work with is someone who might have done some deals. Maybe they have you know a deal every other month coming in, or they just have inconsistent income, and they really want to learn sales and marketing strategies so they can consistently get two, three, four, five deals a month in a formulaic way. So those are the two people I work with. If that sounds like you, I'd love to hop on the phone with you for 15 minutes, see if you're a good fit for our coaching program. Go to bookacallwithgreg.com and sign up for a free consultation today. Yes. <laughs> Dude, something that I bet you is true in Texas, and I was talking about this with Mike, is that the people in New York know that it's very hard to foreclose. The tenants know it's very, very hard to evict. So when they know that, they understand they have a lot of leverage. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not as straightforward to do that because they know they have a couple of years at least, right? Or they know they have at least 90 days in New York, right? So to do an eviction. So this strategy seems like an absolute no-brainer if you're in a state that makes this simple, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, yeah. even California, believe it or not. It's a deed of trust state. It, there's some more problems with California, which how much time do we have? Right. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, the South, if you're in a state listeners, that is a judicial state, this is going to be harder, which means the judge has to get involved to foreclose and it's a full-blown lawsuit. That's like Florida, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. If you're in a non-judicial state, deed of trust, Texas, Arizona, Oklahoma, even California, you can do this a lot faster. So when you're getting a property, Austin, in your business today, what makes you decide what bucket to put it in, whether it's a real rental, whether it's a seller finance rental, whether it's a flip, like how do you make the decision if you're buying most of these properties at a discount? What, what do you want to keep as a note? What do you want to keep as a rental? Because that's, that's probably a problem you run into a lot. Yeah. So it was for a while that uh, for people that know me, they know I try to do something once and for all. And so I try not to just figure this out one time. And then the next deal that comes through, I'll figure that one out. I try to create a formula or a system that people on my team can follow. That just makes it super simple. And so, you know, we're making hundreds of offers every year and we look at tons of deals. And so I just built out a calculator. It has a flip column and a rental column. Okay. And It'll light up green if the numbers are good for a flip over here or green on the other side if the numbers are good for a rental. And so it's pretty simple. Um, there's lots of numbers that go into that and all that. But but at the end of the day, if it's red, it's bad. If it's green, it's good. So that's good. Um, so we have a, a calculator like that. Now, on a there's a proper a package of properties that I just bought. 23 houses and so we bought it because it had great equity in it and that was basically step one and so for me every deal has to have really good equity in it for me to buy it from there we can decide what we do with it so some of them we're going to sell their finance and then some of them we're going to keep those rentals that makes sense yeah you can have a little bit of both you can get the cat let's again you go get the cash generated to, to have the income and then you take that income and you put it back into the rental so yep what, what about this? I'm just using an example here, right? I'm just thinking through this. What is the bank going to give you? Like 80% max? Maybe? There, there are some that will do 85%, but yeah, I don't count on that. I 80% is a pretty good number. All right. So it sounds like, and I could be off, so that's what I'm asking. It sounds like if the bank's willing to give you, let's say 80, 80%, 75, 80%. Okay, let's just call it 80 for now. And you know you can sell or finance that at, at like 105%, Right. In, in that scenario, assuming it's in the right area where it makes sense and the rent's going to be more expensive than the payment, probably a factor. Can you technically pay 85% for that house or 80, 80, 75, 80% for that house? And, and even with the closing costs, you could still sell or finance that out? Because it seems like if that's the case, then you can pay more than most people if you're going to do that strategy. Because you're basically just making a spread on the equity and then on the, on the payment. The technical answer is yes, but don't tell my acquisitions team. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Got, gotta buy it at a big discount. But technically, yes. And so that's where this tool comes in is that if you do get a deal and it's not selling, so let's say you thought you're buying it at 70% and it actually turns out that it's not selling for that price, you can apply over financing and all of a sudden this deal will sell, you get the price you want, and you'll have long term cash flow. So, yes, you can 
pay a little bit more when you're owner financing, but I still try to keep the same discipline for every deal that we get. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You obviously want to get it as cheap as you can, but in the event that you can, yeah, I mean, because it's basically what is the, you want to play with the house money. And then once you play with the house money, how, how do I have as little of my own money in this deal as possible? That's how I would look That's at right. it. Like, so if I know the house or the bank is going to give me 75% loan of value, and I know I can get Rick Jones to do 102% of value, you know, he's going to pay you what? Let's say he pays you 850 a month and you're paying the bank. 700, not 500 a month. You know what I mean? Like it's just a spread on like what, what the, what you can get versus what you're going to owe. And that's, that's very interesting. Now, a lot of these tenant buyers, um, I'm, I'm guessing they're doing this because they, they might not have the, actually, let me, let me take it back here. Down payments, right? So what do you require for a down payment for something like this? 10%? At least 10% of the price. Pretty All right. standard. So you buy a house. Okay. So you sell it for 200, you want 20 grand down and that down payment's going right into your pocket. Yep. Yeah. Pay someone on the team that sold it, but then the rest of it, yeah, goes into the company. That, this business model, as I'm thinking about it, is a, a no brainer because you're getting cash now and cash later. And on top of that, here's the third part that you haven't even considered. Whenever you uh, buy at a good discount and you go to the bank and you get your 80% of ARV loan, if you bought it for less than that, you're getting cash whenever you get it funded at the bank. So you're getting some cash then, you're getting a down payment, and then you're getting cash flow long term. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because if you refi, I've done this where you get tax free cheddar and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> Man, this is a great business model. I'm just like low key jealous because I mean, I could do this virtually, but I've never even considered it. Huh. So, what I always tell people is, when you're looking at rentals versus creating notes, yeah, financing with the rentals, you're going to get the appreciation on the property. So that's awesome over the long term. Um, you're going to get more of the tax benefits, but it's going to be a lot more work, a lot more headaches, and probably less cash flow because of the tenant turnover and the maintenance and all maintenance that. and furnace goes out. Yeah, you got to be responsible for that. But the seller finance notes, on the other hand, you're more than likely going to have better cash flow and if not more consistent cash flow. Yes. It's going to be very easy once you set it up on the front end. You'll get a chunk of cash now. You're not just going to get monthly payments. But the downside is you don't get the appreciation. Whoever buys it from you gets the appreciation. So that's kind of the trade-off. between. And you don't get the depreciation because you that's can't right. depreciate a house you don't own. So you're going to pay ordinary income. Well, you're pay whatever income that is. But it's, you know, way I look at it is like depreciation is cool. And I've done a bunch of cost segs and it saved me some money. But but at the end of the day, like it, I look at rentals now where it's, I have a little bit of a jaded view on it because I've had bad tenants because I've inherited most of them. Mm-hmm. I look at like the amount of aggravation that goes, and then listen, my state's hard to do an eviction in. So I'm a little fucked up, yeah. but but. I look at the brain damage that go, and I, I'm going to keep buying rentals. I'm not like telling people to not buy rentals in New York. I'm just telling you, get ready for a bruising, right? I look at the <laughs> aggravation and the liability. And a lot of the times, if, and I learned this from Michael, if the property doesn't make a real cash flow, you should, you got to just understand that you're, you're not going to get rich off a of rental making 200 bucks a month. And, and listen, I'm not saying don't buy the rental. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to like the listeners. It's like, you're making 200 bucks a month is a, is a, is a, is a step forward. But if people want to like quit their job and, and like live off their cash flow, I think that's a complete fallacy unless they're doing seller finance notes or they're making like five, 600 bucks a month net profit on the rentals after you're accounting for some reserves going away for fix ups. That's where I see that the rentals can really make sense. But a lot of people, including myself, I've bought rentals where even I have one right now. I'm making $187 a month of net cash flow, but I'm really not taking into account for any vacancy and repairs because I renewed the lease with a tenant because I figured, you know what? If they stay here, I don't have to redo the place. They've already been there forever. I feel bad for them. So I'm doing them a favor. I'm still renting it for almost market rent, but you know that property doesn't make a lot of money. It 
pays the bills, but I'm not using that $187 to go buy a fucking watch. Like I'm, I'm using that money to just stay yeah. to like, you know what I mean? To keep the thing going. So, right. but I have other properties that they make, they make like one makes like 600 bucks a month net. The other one makes like 500 bucks a month net. So like it can work, but back to what you were saying is like, when you can create a, a, a note, which is just a, a mortgage between you and the end buyer, and they're paying you a thousand dollars a month and you truly own the bank, owe the bank 600 bucks a month. Besides any servicing fees, that profit is going right into your pocket because if the yeah. toilet breaks, they're not going to call you. If the furnace goes out, they're not going to call you. And if they can't pay, you can evict them. Well, not evict, you can foreclose relatively quickly to Texas. So it's a very um, beneficial business. So if if you were like starting over again, you've been in the business now for a while, you've done a bunch of deals, you've become very successful. What advice would you give yourself if you had to start over from scratch, knowing what you know now? Hmm, good question. That's a tough one. I like to put a lot of thought into questions like that. I would say probably the biggest one is to maintain my standards for my team. I don't look at real estate as an individual endeavor. You know, I'm not trying to just build this whole thing by myself. I've yeah. been very intentional about building a business and creating opportunities for other people to come in and be a part of it and build things for their life. And so there were times starting out where I didn't uphold my standards. I thought I needed to make an exception for someone and I should have just, I should have just kept the standards because at the end of the day, either I'm going to give in to them or it's going to come to a head where, you know, the standards have to be upheld, but you've wasted time with having not the right person in that seat. No, so that's a great, that's I'd, great advice. I'd too. say that's probably the biggest thing. Like almost justifying why someone else can't meet the standard. And, and, you know, you're either, exactly. either going to keep performing like shit or you're going to have to can them. And it's like, if you have that standard to begin with, this is the baseline and this is the minimum. And in order to stay around here, you have to be at your baseline, which is our standard, whatever that might be, calling people back right away, being consistent, whatever that that benchmark might be. That's a great piece of advice for people because a lot of people get comfortable and they get cozy, including yours truly. You know what I mean? And they're, yep. they're, they're not willing to have a, a conversation with somebody and stay on top of people, right? And I think a big way to prevent that is hiring the right people to begin with. That's right. And, and not even really caring that much about like, oh, this is how you do the job. This is how you call people back. This is how you underwrite. This is how you do that. It's like, is this person have good character and do they have a good work ethic? And then can I train them on the actual real estate versus, oh, this person's really good on the phone, but they're a basket case to deal with like personally. And they're just always <laughs> doing something. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, that's a great piece of advice. You know, I wish I knew that too. I, I actually, you know, I, I my team's really good. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I've been picky with hiring people because of that reason, right? I've had bad <laughs> hires. Don't get me wrong. And I've made mistakes and everyone will make mistakes. That's a great piece of advice, man. So let's, let's get into, let's get into a little bit more on the seller finance. I think this is a real big talking point. I think people really um, are going to get a value from this because they might have never heard of this before. So you're doing these wraparound. Markets. Are you guys doing, um, owner fine, like uh subject to transactions where you're taking over a payment from a seller. Have you guys ever done that? We do, but we keep those as rentals just because I'm sure there are ways to do it, but I don't want to be the one that's saying, all right, we're going to take over your payment, but we're going to transfer the title to someone else. <laughs> we're not going to pay you off and the loan's going to stay in your name. Um, and they're going to pay us and we'll pay you. And then you'll pay the, and then you'll pay the, the bank. Peter will pay Paul, he'll pay Robert, he'll pay Stacy, who will pay John, who will get fucked, you know? <laughs> no, I don't. So do it's just hard to explain that. When something's hard to explain, I don't want to have to convince people. So on subject two, we just keep them as rentals. All right. That's fair enough. And I, I agree with your, I agree with that 100%. Now let's get into subject two, because this is where I, I've had some issues. And I might, this might be a limiting belief, right? Probably is. Most things are. In my experience, Austin, I have swung at 25 pitches in subject two. And in New York, they're not really relevant. This is more for out-of-state stuff I've done. Okay. I have found 
right? And I actually was about to buy a subject too this week, but I had to cancel the deal because the thing didn't make cash flow after I looked at the numbers again, right? And I, that's a lesson. Do your homework, ladies and gentlemen, because if you buy a subject, <laughs> you sign on the dotted line and you're responsible for paying the loan and you, the thing doesn't rent out for it should be, you're going to be in cruising for a bruising, as they say. Yep. I found that besides that one where it was kind of easy, but I ultimately didn't close it. I found the subject to be a very hard sell for a seller um, because they're basically taking a leap of faith that you're going to make their mortgage payment. Most likely they're in financial trouble, most likely, not all the time, but mostly. And I've found that to be a very difficult sale compared to just taking a discount on your house in, in, in an equity deal, right? What have you found? Like what, what, what seller avatar do you see being the most receptive to the subject twos because I I've found that sellers they don't understand it they they think it's shady even though it's not they 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 don't feel comfortable because the loan is still in their name I've found it to be really kind of murky and I've not had a lot of sellers be that receptive to it like they we've almost signed a contract and they're like you know what I think I'm actually just going to do something else with it eh, I don't think I want you making my mortgage payment so what what are your what what are your thoughts on that because I that's my I don't think subject to is as strong of an offer as many other things you can offer them I agree with you a hundred percent there dude I think yeah. it's one of the weakest offers you can give that being said we've only done a few of them really because what ends up normally happening is They'll just owner finance it to us. We will yep. take over their mortgage. And so they have a little bit more control there. But we've done a couple. We're under contract on one right now. And so on the ones that do go through, it's just because of the trust. That's the only reason they pick us. Like we have one under contract right now where it makes zero logical sense that they would sell to us. They had other offers for $10,000 more, all cash. And they're in a financial bind, but they decided to do uh, subject two to allow us to take over their mortgage at a $10,000 lower price. And they get nothing at closing. They don't get any money until we pay it off by selling or refinancing. So they were going to get a bunch of cash from these other people. They're going to get nothing indefinitely for anywhere between one and 10 years from us. But it was the trust that my acquisitions man developed with the seller that made them want to work with us basically they trusted him even though in my opinion subject two is not that strong of an offer when when there are other options available it's kind of the one that like okay seller you understand that everyone's offers have come in for less money than what you owe the bank no one can pay what you owe the bank so here's how we can do it we can take over the loan you know that's where i see it fitting in but um, sometimes they just have such a deep level of trust with you that it'll work when other options are still there. Yeah, no, that's a great point because if if they don't trust you, they're certainly not going to let you make their loan payments. Yep. Even though in Texas it is a little bit easier to to get out of trouble because you can sell it faster, and you know they can technically, I mean, if they did a wraparound, I mean, there's all a bunch of mechanical stuff, but. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. And I I, I like how you just keep that as a rental because then you know you're paying that mortgage and you're getting rent and et cetera. And the, the benefit to sub two, though, I'll say this, when it works out, you're taking over a loan you didn't have to qualify for. It's probably going to be at least whoever's listening to this in 2023, it's probably an interest rate that's lower than market. Yep. And you can generally get into a deal for little to no money. And, uh, you know, you can help a seller out because the truth is if let's say they, they have zero equity in the property, maybe they, they're upside down a little bit, maybe by five or 10 grand, if it still makes a cash flow and you can keep it, who really cares how much equity is in there? Obviously I'm not saying go buy a house underwater. That's like a disaster, but like, let's say you're, you're, you're the things on a 30 year mortgage and they're five years in, I mean, it'll be a good deal in 25 years. You know what I mean? So I think it's a good tool to have in the tool belt. I just see a lot of people talking about it where it's like every deal I do is subject to it. I'm like, well, show me the HUDs because I, I don't buy it. You, you probably know? don't do too many deals then. <laughs> yeah, I just don't see it being, I see it being a really good tool in the tool belt. And I see it working out real well, but I can't see that being a three, four, five deal uh, a, a, a week kind of strategy unless you're buying nationwide, right? From other people. Because, you know, another thing with sub two that I've thought about is like, the seller usually is in a jam and they have no money or else they're going to put it on the market or whatever, or no equity. And you have to look at it as a buyer, even if they trust you, 
is this really going to benefit that person? And a, a lot of times it's, it is because it, it, they're going to get foreclosed and they're going to get shot. Their credit's going to be toasted. If you can catch their loan up and stuff, it will benefit them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, they might not disclose, oh, well, this loan's going to be in your name for 10 years. That's going to probably yeah. show up on your credit. Is that something you'd be open to? Or Because I think a lot of people can, can pull the wool over people's eyes if they don't disclose what's really going on. And if the seller knows exactly what's going on and they decide it's the right thing for them, I think it's a great strategy. I really do. Yep. Um, interesting. No, I love that, man. Now, now let's, let's cover the last pillar and then we'll start to wrap the show up here. I could talk about this for hours, as you can tell. Owner financing when there's no mortgage involved. Let's say you reach a homeowner and they want a bunch of money for the house. They're not taking a discount, but they'd be willing to seller finance you the property. What's your experience with doing transactions like that in Texas? We've done... Many more of those than subject to deals. We've done quite a few seller finance deals. So you can can limit their risk sometimes by getting a banknote. So you're buying it, the bank wants you to put 20% down, they'll loan you 80% and the seller will finance that 20% for you. So you're still buying at zero down, even paying higher prices, um, which I only do on some multifamily uh, mobile home parks, things like that is where that structure has worked really well for us. But other than that, if it's just a single family home, then most of the time there's going to be some level of repairs. Needed. There's a ton of repairs needed. I don't do this strategy because that's so much money out of my pocket to fix it. But if it's just a, a small amount, we, again, you have to build the trust, but you just tell the seller that your money's going to go into maintaining the property, fixing these things that you both know need to be fixed. And so, you know, most of the time you'll give a down payment, but those are for really nice houses that need nothing done to them. Yeah. So for me personally, with our company, we don't, we don't offer down payments on seller financing. Um, we'll do either one of those two structures. Either the bank will loan us most of it and they'll c- carry back a small fortune or the seller will just finance 100%. So it's always the saying is, you know, if it's our price, your terms, that means we'll close as quick as you want with cash. But if it's your price, it's our terms. So we're doing it on payments, no money down, that sort of thing. Dude, I, I say the same thing to people. It's so funny you say that. I, I'll give you my one and only so far owner finance experience in California. So where was that? That was in on Starlight Way in Julian, California. It was actually a vacant piece of land in on the side of a mountain. The guy like wanted... 25 grand or 34. This is a vacant lot. It was like a piece of a mountain, right? Like literally the thing it was, there was houses around it, but middle of nowhere. And I said, I'll give you 25,000. I'll give you five down. You finance 20 grand over 60 months. I didn't even say the I word, which is interest. We, there wasn't even brought up. Yeah. We closed the deal and I sold it afterwards. If I knew what I do now, I would have seller finance had someone else, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, oh, I got to this property. <laughs> but if you don't ask, the answer is always no, right? And I, that like, opened my eyes. And it was actually a pretty easy deal. Like it didn't really, wasn't really that big of a problem to close. So that's a good strategy. Like if, if the bank's willing to give you 80 and then the seller takes back 20, like they're going to get most of their money up front. So they're going to be happy as a clam. And then they're going to finance what? 20% of a $200,000 property. It's like, you know, depending on if you're doing bigger deals, but yeah, it's, it's a win-win because in that way, they're not taking this huge hit on cap gains. They're going to take most of the hit, but then they're going to take their 20% down as like a slow little drip of taxes because they're going to create a mortgage or a deed of trust in your state. And I think it's a good, good like lesson for people. It's like, listen, if they want their price, it's on your terms, i.e. a lot of money. You can still pay like market value for the property if it makes profit or if it's, what is it? Their price, no, their terms, your price. So like if they want to, yeah, if they want to close in two weeks, okay, well, it's going to be at 65 cents on the dollar and I can make that happen for you. So you always want to let the seller know what, what the, you know, what the alternative is. Like what's, what's the, what's the yep. pros and cons? How does it teeter? So it's funny, like we've made this in New York. We've like tried to do this like with, with sellers to like have them seller finance us. And I've came close on a few, but what ultimately ended up happening, and this is a a Northeast problem and it still works, but the seller's attorney gets in their ear because the seller has an attorney and they're like, uh, this guy's going to put 10 grand down. Uh, you're selling this thing for 400 grand. 
what on earth? And then they're like, no, we're not doing this because <laughs> they know how hard it is to foreclose. Right. So it's, it's like, I yeah. had one multifamily. I was close to buying it. I'm actually glad I didn't buy it because COVID happened right after that. And who knows what the fucking went down with that thing. But the seller's attorney was like, no way. And then he had a mortgage on it. So we would have to wrap the mortgage. It was like this whole thing. And I was like, forget about it. But, uh, what was that? Pete, what was that guy's name? Pete, uh, Pete McCarthy was the seller's name. I remember the guy, nice guy. I actually know his son. So it was pretty funny, but, um, you know, that deal didn't work out, but the takeaway for the listeners is if their price, your terms, no. Yeah. Their price, your terms, your price, their term. Wait, say it again. That's right. You yeah. got it. Yeah. There you go. Their price, your terms, your price, their terms. That's right. That's how you do it. So let's get into like, what do you got going in the future? Where do, where do you want your company to be at? Like, what's your kind of vision for everything? Obviously you're, you're really doing well in Texas and it's awesome to see, you know, a fellow young guy crushing it as they would say. So what, what does the future look like for you, Austin? Well, uh, we're just operating in Lubbock, Texas, and, and there's some small towns that are pretty close to us. So um, that's where our business is. And I intend to stay focused until we take over Lubbock. So first goal will be the number sure one home buyers here. Yeah, uh, that's our first goal is to be the number one home buyers in Lubbock. And then once we achieve that, our next goal is to be the number one home buyers in Lubbock by such a wide margin that you don't have to go count how many properties everyone did. Everyone just kind of knows. And so that's our second goal. Once we hit that, then we might look at, at some other markets, but we're just kind of sticking to the plan, sticking to the same model that I've had for years now, buying discounted properties. Um, it's not just houses though. Like I, I alluded to earlier, we've got some mobile home parks, love those, small multifamily, and then lots of houses. So um, last year we did 50 houses. We bought another 19 mobile homes, move into our park, but we're looking to at least double that this year and already off to a, a raging start so far. We've closed on quite a few houses this year already in 2023. So just keeping, keeping it running, fine tuning the business model and pulling the right levers at the right times to keep it a great business and, and, Keep growing. That's what That's we're doing. awesome, bro. You're you're smart for going deep, not going wide. I see a lot of people. They're like, they're doing like two deals a month in a market. They're like, oh, I'm ready to go to the next market. I'm like, what are you, <laughs> what are you going anywhere else? You did two houses a month, and you're, you're you think your market's tapped out? Like, what are you crazy? You know. So this is this is some good wisdom, it, or at least it's my opinion. I'll call it wisdom for people considering that because I thought about going elsewhere. I have roots in Houston, Texas, and thought about growing an arm there or somewhere else. And what I see is that people expanded the new markets for two reasons. One reason, which is the right way, in my opinion, is you've unlocked all of the potential that you have in your market. You've got your market share. You've kind of maxed out the business, so to speak. Yeah. You know, you're operating. At Marketing such a high is level. diminishing at that point. And then, and then you need more market. That's the right way. That's how I want to do it. The other way, I see a lot of people like you just described, kind of get going just a little bit. And then they don't have that much success because other people are just better at whatever business they're in. They're not, they're not elite at their craft yet. And then so they want to jump into another market just so they can hit justify the number of deals that they want to do. Stupid. Yeah, it's the so same. I want to be the first type of person, not the second. So I love I, it. I no, it's true. Discipline with that for sure. Dude, that was so well said because I, I the only reason I'm in two markets right now is because my acquisitions guy physically lives in Delaware and he can go on appointments. That's it. If he didn't live in Delaware, I would not be doing business there, right? That's that's the fact, the facts, right? But he's there, he's local, it makes sense. You know, we have a quicker cash conversion cycle there because there's no like bullshit with attorneys. So it's just it makes sense to do that. But I see too many people saying, oh. I'm going to wholesale in Cincinnati and then I'm going to go into Kansas city and then I'm going to go into Las right. Vegas. It's like, listen, you can do all that more power to you, but you might as well get really good in Cincinnati. And then yeah. you go into Kansas city, whenever you feel like you, you, you've maxed out your market. I got a friend in, in Washington and he, uh, or he lives here, but he does business in Washington. And he's like, dude, I'm going to, cause I, he got an office in San Diego and I'm like, Oh, are you going to start doing deals here? And he's like, hell no. He's like, I'm going to go max out Washington, but we're just going to do it from San Diego. I said, hell yeah, that's awesome. Like so the lesson is go deep, not wide. 
and max your market out. Even if you're in a small market like Austin, there's a ton of freaking like in any small market. I mean, there's a guy, my friend, Eric Brewer, he's in um, like York, Pennsylvania, which is like, where the hell is that? You know, Pennsylvania. And he's, he's crushing it in a small market because he goes deep in that market versus trying to be the king of the Northeast or whatever it is, or the king of Pennsylvania. Right. So take that lesson. That's a million dollar lesson listeners. You just got for free. So Austin, if people want to check you out, follow you, see what you got going on, what's the best way for people to, to plug in with you, bro? Uh, personally, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can search my name. And then uh, our company website has some different places to go for sellers, or if you want to invest in some deals with us, it's thundersunhomes.com. Thundersunhomes.com. I love that because you got a lot of thunderstorms and you got a lot of sun in Texas. That's right. So you got that. <laughs> cool. And then we'll get you on LinkedIn and uh, we'll put all that in the show notes. Is there an email address if people want to reach out to you directly without fucking around on LinkedIn? Do you have an, an email you want to share with them just in case they want to get, get to you? Sure. Quick? Uh, you can do austin at thundersunhomes.com. Beautiful. A-U-S-T-I-N at yep. thundersun. S-U-N. Yeah, I almost said thunderstorm homes. <laughs> yep, you got it. Cool. Austin, I appreciate you taking some time out to do this interview, my friend. I'm really impressed with you. I genuinely mean that. You're doing great stuff and it's exciting to see where you'll be at in the future, my man. So thanks for doing the interview and I'll catch you soon. Thank you. Appreciate you too. Hey, what's going on? This is Greg Hellbeck here. And if you're listening to this, odds are you are a real estate investor. And a big question that I always get asked is, Greg, how do you get your deals? So I have the answer to that question. The main way that I get deals, and it's been this way for years, is through direct mail marketing. Now, direct mail marketing is certainly not easy. But if you have direct mail dialed in the right way, it is profitable month after month after month after month. So I'm actually going to give you a free guide, which is my top five direct mail mistakes. So if you want to check out my guide absolutely for free, go to directmailclass.com, put in your name and email, and you will get my guide, which is my top five fatal direct mail mistakes. If you just use that guide alone, it will make you a much better direct mail marketer. So if you want to learn how to optimize and become very successful finding deals through direct mail marketing for your real estate investment company, go to directmailclass.com and get my free guide. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you're able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews. They see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.